just to get it done and then move on, but I actually want to think about it and meditate on its words and then write down what I learned. And then I pray for myself, my family, the students here at Freedens, other prayer requests. And then what I've been doing is reading a book that is helping me grow as a person, as a part of that time. And the book that I've currently been reading is called Bringing Up Boys by Dr. James Dobson. And it's a really good book about methods for parenting your children. And I've been really just in my life thinking and studying a lot about how do I grow as a parent and what are the different methods for raising children, not just because I have kids of my own, but because as a youth pastor, I want to help parents to raise their children better. And one of the things that I'm really learning and realizing is that there are a lot of people who have very strong and passionate opinions on what it means to raise children, right? And I think as, as a young parent who's trying to figure out how to do this, it can be absolutely overwhelming to just see all the, the different ideas that people have about parenting. And I think it's even more daunting to go at parenting without a plan and a method for how you're going to raise your, your kids. That can be just daunting. And I think that overwhelmingness and that daunting feeling is something that we can feel with the Bible as well. I mean, it's, it's this book that was written between two and 5,000 years ago. It's just this ancient book, and there's so much on it. And the truth is, there's a lot of people who have very strong opinions on how we should or shouldn't read the Bible. And if we don't understand or have a method how to read the Bible, that can be daunting and overwhelming and confusing as well. So today, we're going to talk about what are the proper methods for us to read and interpret the Bible. We're doing this because we are in the middle of a sermon series called Big Butts, which examines objections that people have toward Christianity. And today, we're looking at the but, but you can't take the Bible literally. And I think in terms of scope, this is a huge but, because it touches on so many different topics regarding the Bible. One of the things that I did as I was researching this sermon, I I wanted to say, okay, why do people have this objection about reading the Bible literally? And so I went online, I just Googled, can you read the Bible literally? And I found this poll that just simply asked, do you believe that the Bible can be read literally, yes or no? And then it gave people an opportunity to respond, why or why not? And it was very interesting to see the various reasons that people had for why you could or could not take the Bible literally. And here are just a few that I saw. And these are mostly the ones that people had for reasons they couldn't read the Bible literally. First, they were saying things like, but God didn't inspire the Bible. But the Bible has errors and contradictions in it. But the Bible was written by men who lived hundreds of years after the events took place. The Bible has been changed so much over the years. But science doesn't support the Bible. But the Bible contains miracles and things that are impossible. But the Bible's books were chosen by men. They just voted on what books should be in the Bible. But ultimate truth is unknowable. The only thing that matters is what means to me. And the Bible wasn't meant to be literal, literally read. It has a lot of metaphors and stuff. So you can see that there's this huge thing that it comes to why we should or shouldn't read the Bible. And each of these topics could be their own sermon, really, 
I mean, it's, it's a huge topic. And I, I think we, sh- we could have a sermon series just on objections that people have about the Bible. We would call it butts of biblical proportions. And yes, I've already pitched this idea to Brandon, so we don't even think about stealing that idea. (laughs) Well, like I said, the matter of truth is that all these objections, I mean, if, if any of them had serious validity to it, we would have a hard time arguing that we should read the Bible literally. And because this but is so big, my agenda for today is to simply give you my reasoning of why I think I should read the Bible literally. And I'm going to just briefly go over a couple of these topics. I'm not really going to have a chance to go into detail because it's such a broad scope. But I'm hoping to present to you a, a decent argument for why we can and should read the Bible literally. And my goal today is to support the following three statements. First, I want to give evidence to support that the Bible was inspired by God. Because I think this is probably the biggest objection that people have. Is, I don't believe the Bible was written by God. It was just written by infallible men. Therefore, no, you know, we shouldn't have take the Bible literally. Secondly, I want to say, okay, if God did write the Bible... Is there a universal message for all mankind that he is trying to communicate to us? And, and thirdly, if we can conclude that we should read the Bible literally, read the Bible literally, how, what does that even mean? And how do we do it? And we're going to look at a method for reading the Bible literally. So before we dive into that, let's pray and ask that God would be with us today as we look at this topic. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, As evangelical Christians, we believe that your word is very, very important to us. It is the foundation of what we believe. Lord, we pray that you would right now fill me with your Holy Spirit and that you would help me to speak your truth clearly and effectively. Lord, and I pray that our hearts would be open to what you have for us today. Lord, I pray that our faith would be strengthened as a a, um, part of this message and that you would be glorified in the process. Amen. So let's, let's jump into this and examine some evidence that the Bible was inspired by God. And like I said, I think this is a really important place to start because I think if we can make the argument that God did have an intimate hand in writing the Bible, then we can assume that the Bible is without errors because God is a God who is passionate about his own perfection. And he's not a God that wants to communicate improper or false ideas to us. So therefore, we can conclude that in its original writings, it's inerrant. Secondly, we can conclude that um, the supernatural occurrences, like the miracles and stuff, if it was written by a supernatural God, are logical and even to be expected, right? If, If there's an intimate supernatural God who's working in creation, we would expect to see signs of that, even supernatural signs. And thirdly, we can assume that the Bible does have authority in our life because it was written by God. And I think there is a very good case to be made to support the fact that the Bible was inspired by God. Um, Before we dive into that evidence, though, we need to define what we mean by inspiration. And I think one of the best definitions for inspiration comes from the Princetonians who were a bunch of theologians that wrote this definition to 
help us to understand what it really means. And it says this, inspiration is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit by which he superintended the writing process of scripture so that all the words in every part of the original writings were at the same time the words of the human authors and the very words of God. So, I mean, this is kind of a very heady, wordy definition, but it basically says that when the authors were writing their books, God was there influencing them and guiding them so that their words were both their own and God's very words. This, this idea, the main idea here, comes from 2 Timothy three sixteen, which says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This term in here, God-breathed, carries this picture of a sailboat that like the wind comes and fills its sails and pulls it along or or pushes it along. That's kind of the idea of God breathing, that he's filling the authors and giving them the power that they need to write their word accurately and inerrantly. So the idea that when the authors of the Bible were writing, the Holy Spirit filled them in a supernatural ray so that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted them to write. And not only in 2 Timothy 3.16, but all over the Bible, there are claims that the authors are writing the words of God. Here are just a few of those verses. I'm not going to read them, but I just want to show that the Bible clearly claims to be, have a divine origin. The point is that the Bible is not really interested in being known as just a book of history or a book of morals. The Bible considers itself and makes the claim that it is the very words of God. Therefore, when we as Christians make the argument that the Bible is God's inspired word, we are not trying to make it into something it's not, like a pauper who doesn't really want to be king. When we say and trying to prove that the Bible is God's word, we are taking its claims and we are basically confirming the bloodline of a prince who is claiming right to the throne. Now, when we look at the evidence to support the Bible's claims, that it is the inspired word of God. And again, I'm just going to briefly go over these things because each one of these could be a sermon all to itself. But my hope is just to kind of give an overview and a a summary of these different points so that we can have confidence that there is evidence to support this claim that the Bible is God's word. The first thing I see is just the Bible's unity. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors. And these authors come from every walk of life, from fishermen to tax collectors to kings and all different kinds of stuff in between. And they were on three different continents and wrote that in three different languages. So there is a, a, just a drastic diversity among the time periods and the authors themselves and their cultures of, of when these guys were writing. Yet in spite of all this diversity, the Bible preve- presents a single unfolding story of God's redemption of human beings through his son, Jesus Christ. To me, that unity among the diversity 
screams that there is a divine needle threading this together. Secondly, the, there's prophecy in the Bible that is fulfilled. There's over 300 prophecies, and that's a very conservative number in the Old Testament that specifically reference the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we have more than enough evidence to show that these prophecies and the Old Testament were concluded in its current form that we have now, 400 in 450 BC. So at least 450 years before Jesus came, these prophecies have been stated. And a lot of them are a thousand years at least before Jesus came. But of all these 300 prophecies, every single one of them about the Messiah was fulfilled by Jesus. And these are not, there's a guy, he's going to be a man that comes and he's going to do some sweet things. Like these are very specific prophecies. Things like the town that he would be born, his lineage, right, who all his ancestors would be where he would grow up, the town that his childhood would spend, that there would be a messenger that would come and precede him, even that he would be portrayed, betrayed by a friend, that he would die with thieves, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and even that he would be born of a virgin. These are not general prophecies. These are very, very specific prophecies. And my question in response to that is how would these prophets know these things if God himself were not telling them these specific details and empowering them to write these things? And this is, in this idea of prophecy, I think is one of the most important evidences for the Bible and makes it unique because no other religious book makes these claims of, and prophesies the way the Bible does. You know how many prophecies there are that Muhammad would come? None. How many of Joseph Smith would come? None. Jesus Christ is the only one that has 300 prophecies made about him hundreds of years before he came. And he fulfilled every single one of them. To me, that, again, screams for a divine authorship. Thirdly, there is historical evidence See, the Bible was not written in a vacuum. It's not just a bunch of, hey, these are good things on how you can live. But instead, it contains stories that are rooted in history, that contain cultures, like, like people that actually existed in their cultures. Now, the purpose of the Bible is not just to be a history book. The purpose is to share God's story, yet the Bible's representation of history is far more accurate and detailed than any other history um, record of its time. And most of the cultures and the people that have been described in the, in the Bible have been verified by our outside sources and archaeology. A biblical scholar named Norman Geisler words it this way, why many, of the, why many have doubted the accuracy of the Bible Time and continued research has consistently demonstrated that the Word of God is better than its critics. In fact, while thousands of finds from the ancient world support in broad outline and often in detail the biblical picture, not one incontrovertible, which basically means um, indisputable, find has ever contradicted the Bible. So you can see here that, like, 
this biblical scholar is saying that archaeology and, and all of our historical finds show that the Bible is very, very accurate in its um, its uh, claims to history and its writings of history. And I think um, that's really important. Sorry, I I have a note that I added later and I totally put it in the wrong place. But, um, so I'm trying to... <laughs> So, okay, I remember where I was. Okay, so this idea that the Bible contains accurate history in and of itself does not prove that, a, that God inspired the Bible. But it does point to the fact that the Bible is reliable and therefore trustworthy. And I think if everything else in the Bible is trustworthy, therefore we should be able to trust it when it claims a divine authorship. Secondly, there is a ton of manuscript evidence. Manuscripts were handwritten copies of the Bible before the printing press. And the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament are within 50 years of the original writings. And not only that, um, but we have 5,650 of them in the Greek alone. And we have 10,000 that were translated into Latin and if you add the total number of Greek, Latin, and all of the language, um, there's over 25,000 manuscripts, pieces, that verify what was written in the New Testament. Basically, this, to me, this means that it, it would be impossible for people to make changes to the Bible because there's so many other manuscript evidence that we could go to and see, no, see, you tried to change that in 500 AD, but we have stuff, you know, the stuff way before that happened to prove that the Bible that we have now is what the original authors intended. And where I think that's backed up even more is, again, the Bible is in first place in terms of the evidence that supports it with 20, about 25,000 manuscripts. Second place is Homer's Iliad, with 640. 640, 25,000. The Bible, in terms of its manuscription, manuscript evidence, is on a pedestal of its own that no other book can claim. So if people want to argue that we don't have the, the original authors, what they wrote, they have to disregard every other writing that was pre-printing press in order to be consistent with that claim. And most scho no scholars are willing to do that. Um, and again, the, that manuscript evidence does not necessarily prove that the Bible is of divine origin, but it shows, again, its reliability and its trustworthiness. And secondly, in my mind, that, that points again that there is something supernatural that's working to preserve the Bible that we have. That, what, what, that if we can conclude that God really did write the Bible— he wants us to have it, and he is actively involved in making sure that we do. And finally, um, we can believe that the Bible was written by God because as Christians, we follow Jesus and what he says, right? And Jesus himself believed that the scriptures were written by God. I want to read this quote. This is an excellent book. If you're having any doubts or buts about Christianity, this book is phenomenal. It's called Evidence, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. He wrote this book um, or 
compiled this evidence when he was mad at, at his Christian's friends. He was kind of mad at God, really, because his life, his family life was just bad. His dad was the, the town drunk, and he was just really embarrassed by his family, and he was mad that God put him in that family. And when he got to college, he was really mad at God, and, and some Christian people were starting to be nice to them. And in, in his, like, anger, he's like, I'm going to prove once and for all that Christianity is false, and I'm going to show those guys. And he ended up basically, through his research, discovering that, hey, there is more than enough evidence to, to show that Christianity is a very um, verifiable belief system. And he became a Christian, is now one of my favorite authors and stuff. And he wrote this, this book called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he writes this um, little segment that I want to read because it's excellent um, about what Jesus says about the Bible. Jesus Christ not only assumed the authority of the Bible existing in his day, the Old Testament, he taught it, going so far as to say that the scriptures are entirely without error and eternal, being the word of God. If the scriptures are the word of God, as Jesus taught, they must for this reason alone be entirely trustworthy and inerrant. For God is a God of truth. Therefore, on the basis of the teaching of Jesus Christ, the infallible Son of God, the church believes also that the Bible is infallible. So, I hope that I've stated a fairly convincing case that there is overwhelming evidence to believe and that there's evidence to support the Bible's claim that it is the inspired words of God. So the question comes then, if God wrote it, why did he write it? Part of the reason that I feel this is an important argument is because one of the major influences of our culture over the past decade or so has been this idea of postmodern, postmodernism, which states in its simple case that truth is unknowable and therefore we have the ability to find what we think is true and just live off that. We shouldn't search for an absolute truth because it's, it's impossible to find, figure that out. Now, I have a very, I think, unique educational path. My parents started me off um, at Ozaki Christian School, which is a school in Sockville, and I went there for three years, kindergarten, first and second grade. And then... I moved over to our Savior Lutheran, which is in Grafton. I was there for four years uh, through sixth grade. And then my parents homeschooled me for four years um, through 10th grade. Um, And then I spent my last two years of high school at Port High. So I pretty much had the complete spectrum of education that you could have, right? Um, And one of the things that I remember of my first couple days in high school was I was sitting in a literature and comprehension class and I was just sitting there listening and the teacher made this comment that kind of made me perk up. I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what she says, but this was the gist of her statement. What, when you're reading, what the author was trying to communicate doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what it means to you as the reader. And I remember sitting there in that class thinking to myself, that doesn't sound right. I mean, I, I wasn't really sure why at the time, but I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, that, that doesn't sit well with me. There's something up with that. And now that I've, I've gone and gotten a college education, 
I know that my teacher was completely wrong. <laughs> like, that, that, that's just a horrible statement, right? The job of the reader is to look for the author's intended meaning. And I think this is vitally important when it comes to the Bible. Like I said, my teacher obviously had a very postmodern view of the world, which the basic premise is that truth is unknowable, and therefore each person defines and lives by what truth is to them. The reasoning behind this postmodern argument is that all people have a very clouded perspective on the world that prevents us from being completely objective. And we all bring our presuppositions and our past experiences and that clouds our perspectives, and therefore we cannot escape our subjective view of the world. And, I mean, to be honest, I think there is a lot of truth to their ideas behind that postmodern view. I mean, in order for us to be truly objective, we do have to have an absolute knowledge of something, right? Otherwise, we are going to have a perspective and we're going to be clouded. Um, Biblical scholar Norman Geisler said, absolute objectivity is only possible for an infinite mind. And I think that's, it's so true, right? So therefore, I mean, maybe the the postmoderns are on to something. Maybe we don't have the ability to be completely subjective because we don't have an infinite mind. We've got a very finite mind, right? I mean, if only there was somebody out there with an infinite mind who could explain to us what life is all about and and how... What's this? A message from God. If we have any hope of having an objective perspective and seeing the world for how it really is, we need a standard that is written for us by someone who is not bound by subjectivity, who has an infinite knowledge of the world and who cares to communicate that truth to us, right? I mean, this Bible... Is that's why the Bible is so important to us. Because without us, we are stuck not really knowing truth. Unless we have an objective standard, we're, we're going to be just lost. And I think that's why the Bible is so important to us as believers who follow an invisible God and follow a man that was born 2,000 years ago. It's very important for us to base our belief on something that we can trust and rely on. I mean, the Bible is our foundation for everything that we believe. And, it, and to respond to postmodernism, it, the Bible tells us the absolute and universal problem with humanity that everyone has, has an issue with, sin. The Bible tells us what everybody's destination is because of sin, that we are all worthy of eternal punishment for what we've done. And the Bible tells us the absolute solution to those problems in his son, Jesus Christ. If God wrote the Bible, which I believe there is sufficient evidence for, he has a very important message to communicate to us in his word. And therefore, we definitely should read it literally. But what does this mean now, moving on? What does it mean that we read the Bible literally? I think a big part of the objections that I was reading from people is that most people, even Christians, 
don't really understand what it means to read the Bible literally. Here's what it means. The Bible, reading the Bible literally means that when we read the Bible, we are looking for and to understand to the best of our ability what the original author intended for us to understand and apply that message to our lives. I think Wikipedia, surprisingly, had a really good definition of reading the Bible literally. It says, when we read the Bible, the, the reader's job when reading the Bible literally, can you throw that up, Bob? Bob, the Wikipedia thing. Yeah, there you go. Okay, the reader's job when reading the Bible literally is to strive to uncover the meaning of the text by taking into account not just the words, the grammatical words, but also the syntactical aspects, the cultural and historical background, the literally the literary genre, and it emphasizes the meaning of the words in the text without denying relevance of literary aspects, genre, or figures of speech within the text. So. In other words, it does not mean that we adhere to every letter in their most literal sense without regard to metaphors or figurative language. And that we ignore things like the genre or the figures of speech used in the text. In basic terms, that means that we are trying to ask ourselves, what was the author's original intended message? And we seek to draw that out. Um, I think one of the way, another way to clarify this is the idea between two words, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis we, is a Greek we, a transliteration, which means we got the English word from the Greek word. Exegesis means to draw out, whereas eisegesis means to draw in, right? Have you ever heard of an exegetical sermon? The idea of that is that the 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 preacher is trying to draw out of the text and tell you what the text says, right? When you're exegeting text, you're looking for the author's intended meaning. In eisegesis, when you draw in, it means that you're just simply trying to prove your presuppositions and say, hey, the Bible supports what I say, even if it really doesn't. You're trying to read your meaning into the text, and that's a really bad way to read the Bible. That's not what we're supposed to do. Um, but like a stream without banks that turns into a flood, trying to interpret the Bible without a proper method can get kind of mucky. Thankfully, we have a method that is drawn out for us by theologians called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word that means proper methods for studying the Bible. So I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. It's very important that you actually go there because the words are not going to be up on the screen and we're going to be like, we're going to study God's word today together and see how do we do this. All right. While you're turning there, I want to share with you hermeneutics is a three-part process. The first part is observation. It's answering the question, what does this Bible passage say? What are the facts that are presented in the passage? So, um, Carol, could you do me a favor and read out loud Matthew five twenty-seven through 29? Nice and loud for us. And you guys can follow along in the, in the, in the verse.
Thank you, Carol. So we see here in this passage that Jesus is responding to the statement in verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. He says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. So verses 28 and 29, he's responding to that. And in verse 28, he ups the bar by stating that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then in verse 29, Jesus goes on to say, if, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Right? What are some of the things that we observe from this context? This is the idea that we now look at the text carefully and we try to understand what it says. We need to ask questions of the text like, who is Jesus talking to? Like, look in your Bible, see if you can find who Jesus is talking to. No. It's a good question, though. What? The crowds. And more specifically, in the crowds. Nope. Nope. Look it up in the, is it, it's chapter, nope. It's, it's in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, I think it says, right? The disciples. The, the, gathers the disciples. The crowds were, were Jesus' disciples, right? Now, we ask other questions like, are there any um, repeated words or concepts in this whole passage of Scripture look like in this section? Are there any repeated concepts or words that repeat? What was that? Yeah, you have heard it said. Like, Jesus mentions this multiple times. Let me open my Bible. That might help. Um, I mean, look at that. In verse... Verse 21, you have heard it said, right? And what does Jesus mention every time after he says one of these statements, you have heard it said? What, is it, what does he say after that? Yeah, he does say that. But he, he addresses, he brings up a commandment. So he says, you've heard this Old Testament law or commandment. But I tell you, and what does he say when he says, but I tell you, what does he do every time? Does he, like, say, eh, you don't really need to follow that anymore. That's, that's old, outdated, and you, can, you don't need to do that anymore. What does he do instead? He, yeah, he makes it stronger, right? He makes it harder to follow, right? Um, are there any, like, cause and effect that's in this passage? Yeah, what are, what are the causes and effects? Sure, yeah, that's one. If you sin, you're, you could go to hell. What's the other one um, in verse 28? Oh, no, it's 29, sorry. It's like the first part of 29. Like, when you're looking for cause and effect, you want to f- look for if-then statements. What's the if-then statement? You're close. Uh, verse 29 starts with the word if. So that's a great place to look. <laughs> Yeah, if your eye causes you to sin, then get rid of it, right? Yeah, there's, there's other comparisons or contrasts in here. The point I'm trying to make, you guys, is that like when we study the Bible, we shouldn't just breeze through it, right, and, and get rid of it. We should look and observe and, and, and see what are the things that he says, right? And then after that, we do something called interpretation. What, is, what does this mean, Right? We ask, what is the author intending to communicate to the reader? Or what is the objective truth that God is communicating in this passage? And again, we bombard it with more questions. What type of genre is this passage? I mean, is it a poetry? 
Is it a narrative? Is it a sermon? What is it? Yeah, it's a sermon, right? Um, What is Jesus saying about sin in this passage? Yeah, that's that's a great interpretation. That it's the heart, right? And I heard up there that we should get rid of it, right? Yeah, those are those are both excellent interpretations. Um, Now we can ask other other questions. Where does the sin of lust and adultery take place in this passage? Where's yeah? The root of the problem is in our heart, right? Um, Would removing an eye prevent you from lusting? No, it wouldn't. And then another good question to ask is, how did the original audience respond? Do we see any evidence that the disciples went and gouged out their eyes? No, we don't. And I, I would be willing to put money that all of them have lost it. <laughs> they were men, okay? All right. All right, here's another great question. Are there any figures of speech that are being used in this passage? And I would argue, yes. Jesus here is using hyperbole, right? He's overemphasizing something to, to make a point, right? So, what, what then is the, the message that Jesus is trying to convey through this passage? Well, how do we interpret this into its meaning for us, the reader? Because, like I said, I don't think Jesus is literally saying, rip your eye out. What is he saying? Yeah, be serious about your sin. Don't allow your sin to be there. Be serious about it. Get rid of it because it has the potential to corrupt your heart and leave you eternally separated from God. Be serious about sin. That is a literal interpretation that we should take from this passage. And then the third part is application. What should we do about that? And I'm just going to summarize this because we're getting low on time here. Like, how should we live out that message? What, what we could ask the question, what areas of sin am I struggling in my life? And how, what should I do to get, make sure that those don't take over my heart? How can I get rid of those, those sins? The important part that I'm trying to draw out here is that the idea of reading the Bible literally it's not in the observation that's literal. It's in the interpretation that's literal. It's the author's meaning that we need to interpret literally. We can interpret the passage, um, and sometimes, though, that, that is the same thing, right? If, if the Bible says Jesus went into a house, our literal interpretation should be that Jesus went into a house, right? That's what the, the author is trying to convey to us. But that, that's not always the case, because the Bible does use figures of speech and metaphors, and it uses different genres, and we do need to pay attention to those things when we're reading and interpreting the Bible. And I think that makes sense, because we do that in everyday language, don't we? Like, let's say I were to come to you, and I say, oh man, I had a great day yesterday. I uh, rented a Lamborghini. Oh man, that car was so fast, I was flying down the road, and that thing hugged the curves, Right? How many of you are picturing me literally flying like my car is off the ground and then when I decide to turn my car, like two arms come out and hug, I love 
you curve? Like, are you picturing that? No, what am I trying to communicate when I say that passage? Yeah, I'm going fast and the car, yeah, handles really well, right? We use like metaphors and those kind of languages in everyday language. And, and so does the Bible because the Bible was written in, by people that use those kind of phrases, right? That's how humans communicate, to, to draw illustrations and help us see what the author is trying to talk about, right? So in other words, um, we interpret the literal meaning of the text, not just the words and, and ignore the other stuff. Um, I mean, that's really the hermeneutical method. And if you're wanting to grow more in this area of studying the Bible, which I highly recommend you do, um, this book is phenomenal. It's called Living by the Book by Howard and William Hendricks. You're looking at this and saying that's a huge book for um, studying, learning how to study the Bible. But look, there's like really helpful diagrams in here. And there's pictures and stuff. (laughs) Right? And secondly, if you are wanting to grow in your relationship with Christ, can you think of a better skill to develop than the ability to read the Bible as it was intended to be written? I mean, it, it, it definitely should be at the top. Our ability to read the Bible, like we said, because it's so foundational to what we believe, should be very, very important to us. So, in summary, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God with an important purpose to show us his plan for our redemption. Therefore, when we read it, we should look for the author's intended meaning and apply that to our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is awesome. And we are so thankful that you love us enough to give it to us so that we can know and understand how you want us as your followers to live. Lord, I pray that we would work hard and study the Bible to interpret its meaning literally and that we would apply that to our lives as we seek to follow you. Amen.